How was your day? Have you been busy? Been up to up to much or? My day was good. Um, Saturday mornings, I take my formerly feral dog to my teacher's house, and we have kind of a little socialization party <laughs> every Saturday morning, and we did that, and it went really well today. Uh huh. So tell me more about your dog. I don't actually. I I saw I. I know about your blog, I know about your videos, and I've looked into that, but I haven't actually read about your dogs or, or heard about your dogs. Well, I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always a good start, isn't it? Of course, yeah. Well, my dog Clara was a feral puppy, and she showed up on my porch at the age of, we think, about 10 weeks. Um, and she was completely wild. She wouldn't let me catch her. I took out you know, cat food and tried to lure her, and she was having nothing of it. And I was about, I turned on my camera because I was trying to show a friend, you know, I cannot catch this puppy. And I opened my front door and as it happened, one of my other dogs started barking inside the house. And this little wild puppy heard that and just walked straight into my house, ignoring me the whole time. <laughs> it's like there was, I was the doorstop. Uh -huh. And so she was completely unsocialized with people. And for whatever reason, I made it into her clan. I made it into the socialization window, but nobody else did. Um, and that was about five years ago. And we had hoped she was so young that, you know, it would be she would you know, turn a corner and be able to be, you know, kind of a normal dog. And she didn't ever turn a corner. But my teacher is very skilled and very good at this, and she's worked with other feral dogs. And you would never know it to see Clara that there are a lot of situations she just can't cope with because I can take her to the vet, I can take her to a shopping center and walk around. As long as a person doesn't approach her directly and try to interact, she's fine, and she doesn't even act afraid. She acts friendly, in fact. We have to ward people off. Sure. But we've made enormous progress, and that's because, you know, two hours a week, we just work with her. We never had, you know, the magic moment of turning the corner. So she's not normal, but she's always been a lovely dog for me, and she's taught me a whole lot. She's just a fascinating dog to have. Uh, oh, wow, it's great that, you know, you've put that work into a, a dog. And I mean, is there a lot of feral dogs in your area? Well... No. Um, I live in Little Rock, Arkansas, and it's hard to describe. You know, it's it's a state capital, but it's kind of half suburban and half rural as well. And there was a little patch of woods um, close to my house, and there was this one litter of puppies I had seen. Somebody was um, feeding the dam, and I'd seen them. And there are not a lot of feral dogs around here, but there was one litter, and <laughs> one of them ended up in my house. <laughs> Yeah, you could. Well, I guess you kind of got lucky. Yeah, I did. I'm sure you felt like you did now. You know, now five years old. Yeah, yeah. And she yeah, was a charming puppy. She's my first puppy, and, and she she just completely stole my heart. So, <laughs> yeah, it's been good. So, is that where your kind of dog training journey began, or were you already into dog training at that point? It was much earlier. Um, the dog who started me on dog training that was back in 2006, and she was a rescue. Um, some angel of a person used to go around to the shelters around here and take pictures of some of the dogs who were, you know, their time was about up. And she took a picture of this dog. And, you know, like you, like anybody who's in the dog world, I see these pictures every day. But for some reason, that's the picture that got me. And so I drove down to this little town and picked her up. And she was about 10 months old, you know, kind of a typical age for a dog to either be let go or get away. You know, she was an adolescent. And I had never had an adolescent dog before who didn't just kind of fit into my household. And she fought with my smaller, older dog. And she did a bunch of stuff that now I know is completely normal. You know, she chewed things. She escaped. She didn't take well to a crate at first. She climbed my fence. And that's, she is the dog. Her name is Summer. She's 11 years old now. Um, she's the one who got me into dog training, kind of desperately, like happens to a lot of people. Yeah, that's a common theme, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. What type of dog is she? She is a true mix. Um, I got the DNA done on her a long time ago, and sometimes those results are a little questionable, but there's trace of German Shepherd, trace of Chihuahua, trace of Chow. She's sable and has a 
uh, she's marked a little bit like a shepherd, but she's only 30 pounds. Yeah, I've seen those DNA tests. I've never really looked into it. Like, I, I don't... I mean, you, you obviously you said yourself there that, that the results can be questionable. I don't know if different um, companies are more reputable than others, or but it's definitely an interesting It really thing. is, and... Um, I, the best explanation of those, you know, I'm I'm pretty positive about them. You know, some people just think that they're total crap, um, but I I do think that they're getting closer and closer to doing this well. And the best description um, I read of why it is that the dogs don't look like what we expect them to, and we know what their breeding is, um, is in that new book about uh, Pitbull and American Ike. The battle about an American icon, I think that's what it is. But she talks about DNA testing and why you can have a large amount of a breed in a dog and it doesn't look anything like that. You know, supposedly a lot of the, uh -huh. the genetic parts just don't match to appearance very well. Anyway. Is that... Um, Go ahead. Is that when you're a couple of generations down? Yeah, then? yeah, and uh, she yeah. didn't have anything within about three generations. So, she, so we sure. call her an Arkansas brown dog. <laughs> yeah, and what actually, I don't think you mentioned what your feral dog, what type? She's also a mix. Um, she's bigger. She's about 45 pounds, and two of her litter were marked like Dobermans, um, and she's kind of that shape, but she's small. And her ears, well, I, I don't, she's, her ears are not as long as Doberman's natural ears are. But that's the closest thing. She's sand colored. She's tan with uh, black on her tail and her muzzle. So she has that genetic marker, you know, for the black muzzle dog, like some Great Danes and pugs have. She's a very good looking yeah. dog. <laughs> yeah. She sounds it. I mean, Doberman's a yeah. great looking dog. She's not as sharp looking as, oh, as they I, are, I but she's, she's, she's a looker. She's, people always want to come up to her. Uh -huh. I have one of those do not pet uh, vests on her, which helps a little bit, but I have to run interference all the time when we're out and about because she's very beguiling looking, and she stands there and wags her tail and looks like the most friendly, approachable dog in the world. And She would not hurt anybody, but she would not like to be approached either. <laughs> yeah, it's really difficult. And, you know, I get asked that question quite a lot about, you know, um, people that have reactive dogs and, how can they stop either people from coming towards them or how can they stop other dogs? I actually get the, the dog's question more. And I guess it's a little bit... I don't know. I, I think maybe it's a little bit more difficult with dogs because um, it's probably... I don't know if it's different over here in the UK, but um, there's a lot of off-lead dogs. And sometimes people are quite irresponsible about just letting them just, you know, do what they want. Um, and if you're walking your reactive dog on the lead, then it can be quite a dilemma when an off-lead dog right. is running towards That's you. That's right. That's right. It happens here quite a bit. Uh, there's some. There's somebody on my street, you know, it's like <laughs> just on my very one little block street, there's a guy who lets his dogs run wild. And actually, one of his former dogs tried to kill my small dog that I used to have. And uh, I never did stop walking my dogs because I wanted them to have that enrichment. But um, I, I carry the kind of spray stuff and... I agree with you. Dogs are harder than people. I've gotten pretty good at people. <laughs> just stick my hand out and say no and stop. And usually that works yeah. with people, not yeah, always, I mean, but usually. Yeah, I remember when I first started dog training. Actually, I started with a, a trainer, and they actually used to practice yeah. that in class. Just that yeah. stopping people. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, it takes initial confidence with people, but if. If you do the right things, you can stop people. Whereas yeah, it's a little that's bit harder right. with dogs. I, I I know that I I was I had Grisha. The, we did a podcast with Grisha. And we spoke about it a little bit and the kind of techniques that um, she mm -hmm. writes about in her bat book. Um, uh, I know um, as more of a last ditch thing, you kind of have your silly string and stuff like that to try and you know dissuade dogs from approaching. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can, and I mean, you mentioned sprays there as well. And, and sometimes it's not nice, but you have to almost use that aversive to get them to go away because otherwise it that's could right. be a full-on dogfight. Um, yeah, very, it is. Too, um, and it? two times I've seen the spray work. 
from very far away. Um, one time I was with my teacher who reads dog language very, very, very well, and she's almost never alarmed about approaching dogs. She lives in the country, and there's a lot of loose dogs. But we were walking down the street, and there was a dog standing in the middle of the road, and she said, uh-oh, <laughs> which she never says. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, this is bad. Um, and it was a, a dog, a large um, mix with a very aggressive stance, you know, looking directly at us, but it was still about 100 feet away. And she sprayed her, you know, the citronella under pressure stuff. You know, it was way too far for the dog to experience it, but just that hissing sound made that dog back off. And so that was great. You know, we didn't even have to come close to an altercation. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, you never know with a dog like that. But if it's had a history of um, maybe being sprayed in the past, then, of course, True. just that sound is going to... Yeah. yeah. But you just don't know, do you, with these dogs that you, you're just coming That's across right. and you don't know what their history is. And But, yeah. Um, it's funny you talk about, obviously, having a teacher, which I guess everyone does, but... Um, so many of us look up to the kind of... I mean, your writing is amazing. And actually, I... I wanted to say to you as well, because I was talking mm-hmm. to Eric, um, Eric Brad the other day, um, not on a podcast, just talking to him, and um, he was, he actually, he mentioned you, and he said that um, your blog writing is really, really good, and someone to look up to in terms of the way that you put yourself that across. That is very and, kind. Um, making sure, making sure that you're, you're factual, because it's a really hard challenge um, it's one that I've had in my blog writing and, and I know a lot of people come across where you're trying to make it readable yes. for the owners and uh, and you're trying you're trying to simplify it without like getting that's right you know, without right. Um, missing anything um, and it's it's a real skill and, and, and Eric actually I didn't we I wasn't I didn't say that I was going to do a podcast with you um, but Eric brought you up and said that um, you are someone to kind of read um, as that's very kind of him he's good at that too yeah well um, I talk to Eric a lot he's he's been a huge help Mm -hmm. for me with my blog writing and um, just everything really Um, I think the behavior side of things can be quite mind-boggling sometimes and talk Talking to people um, like yourself and Eric and um, etc. can really progress you very quickly. I don't know if you find that with your teacher, if if so, kind of the way with Eric and and, and Claire Russell mm-hmm. is another one who we had on the podcast last. Um, the way that they make you question your beliefs and you, your thoughts about dog training, I find extremely yes. helpful. Although it's uncomfortable at the time, yes. it really does push you. I talk about it as an epiphany. I mean, it's kind of ongoing, but it really, to change your mind from what's around us, which is basically a, a culture which is much more familiar with punishment, uh, to turn your mind around and see how reinforcement works, even when you're not even doing it on purpose, you know, to see that, many of the problem behaviors your dog is performing are because you yourself are reinforcing them and you didn't know it. To see all that really turns you on your head and it's kind of shocking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, where, did, where did you start to get involved in the behavior side of things? And you mentioned that it, obviously that, that um, your dog spurred you into it. Um, when did it start getting a bit more serious? When did you start <laughs> making your videos? Let's see. Um, I did the usual casting around trying to find help when I had Summer and, and my smaller dog. And I went to the local dog, dog club, which is based on, you know, competitive obedience. And it's it's balanced training and lots of fine people there. And I'm still a member. But that didn't really help with the behavior problems I had. Um, and I went another year and kind of just muddled my way through and was doing agility out at this same club. And someone said, well, you should try this certain teacher. And it turns out that my teacher, who is the one I call my teacher, Lisa, teaches agility but also is mostly does in-home behavior consults and she was mentored by uh, Bob and Marion Bailey both and she knows her stuff and that's what got my interest in it um, 
it was probably another year after that. Probably I, you know, I joined in the internet lists and I started having my own ideas and thought there might be something I could offer just making videos. And I started making videos a couple of years before I was a blogger. Uh -huh. Wow, being uh, yeah. mentored by Bob Bob Bailey and yeah. Bailey's is yeah. just that's yeah. that's enviable. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, you were. Oh, I know. I mean, what a way of getting into dog training, I, I though. No, well. you know, it's like in Arkansas, <laughs> there are not very many credentialed, um, science-based. You know what I mean by that? I mean people who consciously use the science, because of course everything we do is based in science. But science-based trainers who know le learning theory, there are very few credentialed trainers. And you know, I just stumbled into someone who's probably one of the best ones in the country who has a very low profile she doesn't have any online um, yeah, presence at all she just quietly helps people with their dogs day in and day out uh-huh uh-huh and then obviously as you started to learn then you've you've i guess you wanted to yeah up your yeah own and i your own of course you know I flirted with the idea of becoming a trainer. That's usually what happens, <laughs> you know, in this situation. As you know, you know, you get the problem dog, you start solving the problem, you start getting some help, you start getting interested, and you think, hey, I want to be a dog trainer. You know, most of the people I know who are trainers started that way. Uh -huh. And I decided not to go that route. Um, just temperamentally, I, I didn't think it would be that good for me. And also, there's just no infrastructure for it here. You know, if there were some very large, wonderful training facility that wanted to hire me <laughs> and that I didn't have to head it, you know, I might have done it. But I felt like I didn't want to do one-on-one -on -one dog training, but I wanted to continue learning about training and um, learning about learning theory and just try to share what I learned from my kind of strange um, amalgam of a position where I am basically a pet owner who's very, very interested in learning theory, but whose training um, technique is not all that high. <laughs> you didn't really want to head a kind of... Um, no, I, no, I didn't have the temperament to be like a small business owner. You know, which is ironic because I am one now as a writer, but <laughs> but I didn't have the temperament to go to people's houses really, and I didn't have a facility to give classes, and I had you know a way of getting the experience if I wanted to, but I just didn't see it as something for me. Plus, I have a great job. Um, I do basically social work and help uh, women get health care. You know, Arkansas is a very impoverished state, and so I I help people in my day job and it's a great job and I didn't really want to give that up mm -hmm. yeah I, when I was um, reading your website I saw a little bit about that and I thought that sounded like such a great cause um, so that does yeah. sound really good yeah it's not something you want to leave lightly even for dogs <laughs> yeah but I mean you kind of get the best, best of both worlds because you know you help people in your day job and then through your blog and your videos you're helping dog owners as well so yeah, I hope so. But I, I do I do feel like I have the best of both worlds because I have, you know, such enriching things that I get to do all around me. You mentioned agility. Um, do, did you compete in agility or? Yes, uh, I did. Um, the first dog, Summer, the one from the shelter, the kind of <laughs> small German Shepherd looking dog. Um, she's a very unlikely dog you know she's reactive and she's very turned on by the environment you know she's got a high prey drive um, but I had a good teacher and Summer and I got good enough to um, compete and she has titles in teacup she's barely small enough to be a teacup agility dog which which is a real uh, organization and then when AKC started allowing um, mixed breed dogs in we I competed with her and by that time I had my other little dog my little hound mix who also is the most unlikely looking dog in the world to do agility but we had such a good teacher and we enjoyed it so much we went to our first um, agility meet and they both just qualified straight through got got their titles oh, wow. immediately that was one of the proudest things that ever ever happened to oh, <laughs> you know especially the little hound she never even had been in really in a ring before and you know i set her down at, at the start line and <laughs> 
walked away thinking, I wonder what's going to happen now because she's the friendliest little thing you've ever seen. And she just sat there in front of that jump with this serious look on her face, and I cued her, and there we went, and it was just perfect. <laughs> Have you taken a lot from the kind of agility world then in in um, your training approaches and stuff? Perhaps. Um, that's hard that's hard to say. I guess so. You know, around here, the agility people are the ones who mostly embrace a positive reinforcement training. I mean, you can use aversives to teach agility, but people don't usually. Um, and so I took some of that, but basically, you know, it was the influence of my teacher, who, by the way, is not one who encourages people to go out and compete if they're not ready. You know, that's something you see a lot at... Um, at meets, you know, the teachers will say, well, you know, go on and just try it. And, and the dog is scared and confused and mixed up. And here I'm just <laughs> going on about that. But I'm trying to answer your question about how much agility affected, you know, my training in general. And it's basically the influence of my teacher who does both, you know, who who is an excellent agility instructor, but also does behavior work. And I just got the whole package there. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, and I mean, when again, when I was looking through your blog, um, you have, well, I think it was quite an old blog I was reading, but it was about um, basically your favorite books, and I guess the books that had the biggest influence on you. Uh huh. And what I, the one that really stood out to me, which is one I hadn't heard of, I forget the title now, but it was about, um, uh, I guess you would call them behavioral definitions, definitions of words that we use to describe mm-hmm. stuff. And again, going back to the kind of conversations that I've had in the past, um, it's something that we've kind of noticed or noticed this trend of you really do need to be able to kind of define everything. Um, That's right. Because otherwise it can get so confusing having a conversation with someone that maybe thinks something something different or you mean something different by those words. That's right. You know, we are talking about a science that has... defined words in it and some of them are defined in ways that are opposite or at least different from how those words are commonly used um, in society like the word punishment you know it has a specific definition and anyone who goes vague on you you know when you're talking about it you know that they probably don't know the learning theory definition of it that happens all the time with those words and I agree with you you know you you have to establish the common language and and for me the language is you know I for anything that has a learning theory definition that's the one that I use sure do you come do you come back to that a lot when you're writing your book yes yeah I do I'm all about words um, and that's that's one of the things I love about learning theory and also you know when I took Susan Friedman's class um, is that a lot of it is about language and using language the best way we can For instance, you know, when you do a functional assessment, you have to talk about the behavior of the animal in very specific ways. And again, these are ways that we're not trained to write or think in terms of, you know, it's like you have to say exactly what the dog is doing, not what you think the dog is thinking or, you know, getting away from the whole dominance thing. But I, I loved the experience of describing something you know to the best of my ability and then finding well you know that was ambiguous there's we can even do this better and i love the language part of learning theory just it's just about my favorite part yeah do you think that that's quite a skill to be able to talk and write in a way that is very uh, almost like scientific like to the point without like you say being ambiguous or kind of oh, yeah I don't know, becoming quite emotional and have it coming to it like a bar. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's it's very hard to do. And you know, I when I write, I edit and edit and edit. And you know, still, still, yeah. when I see something later, I think, ah, oh, you know, that that's a stupid sentence. You know, that's completely ambiguous. Why did I include that? Yeah. Do you find yourself going back and changing? Um, it not after it's published. I make corrections if there's, um, you know, if I've misspelled something, or if someone points out a mistake in the science. Um, I will go back, and usually, rather than just changing it, I'll make a note because I want people to see the process. You know, I want to see that it's okay. You know, that I got that wrong. I'm going to leave it, leave the old one for you to see. This is my misunderstanding, and I'm going to credit the person who corrected me you know just as trying to model 
the way that we need to develop our de- our ideas and and respond to new information. So if if that doesn't happen real often, but it does happen, and I'll I'll kind of make a big deal about it. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that because I'm quite new to the whole blogging thing, and I have found myself going back and editing things. Um, because main, and mostly I find myself editing things if um, I feel that maybe a point's been misunderstood yeah. or I've, like you said, not worded something right, um, but just based on feedback. But I, I guess, I mean, you've been writing for a lot longer than me and maybe it, it get better <laughs> in it, hopefully. <laughs> well, let me give you, I'll give you a hint. Um, people like it when you make mistakes. I don't mean jerk people, but it makes people comfortable if you can kind of eat crow and say, man, I really blew that, but here's what I found out since. Um, I wrote a whole blog on errorless learning, and it was kind of a cranky little blog, you know, well, it's not possible, and, you know, these studies they did, it was not errorless, and blah, 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 very cranky, and a friend of mine who actually, her parents studied under B.F. Skinner, um, very gently wrote me an email and said, you know, um, you really ought to read what Skinner said about errorless learning uh, because I had been going from a later scientist named Terrace and I wrote a whole second blog that I think was longer than the first one where I said, okay, ignore the first one or I'm going to leave it up, but please pay attention to the second one because this is where I got it right. People really like that. You know, they like it that you're willing to say, you know, you don't just erase where you made a mistake, you know, leave it up there. But let Yeah, them maybe that's, that sounds like. That sounds like a mistake I've been making. I'll, I'll have to change that. But um, yeah, that's really it's interesting you bring up errorless learning because that's something that's been going over my mind a lot recently. But I haven't. Actually, that sounds like the solution. Go back to the science, you know, and, and yeah. look at Skinner, etc. And I mean, those articles, I'm sure, yeah. would be a brilliant place. And to errorless start. learning. I, I like the term errorless teaching. You know, because that's really what it is. It's what the teacher has to do to set the student up to progress with as few errors as possible. Anyway, that's one of the places I kind of do deviate from the regular nomenclature. But, uh, but yeah, going back to that old stuff, you know, Skinner, so many things we go back to, Skinner talked about it, you know. <laughs> he did it. He talked about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself going back to the science a lot then? Because I, I don't know. I think uh, maybe... Um uh, maybe a lot of the pet trainers, I guess. Um, I think maybe more like behaviorists, etc. Go back to the science, whereas maybe the, um, those that train probably don't as much. And that's probably something. Well, it's probably something that I'm missing certainly, um, because I mm-hmm. did a degree in it, but um, and I looked at the science during that time. But I don't find myself going going back as probably as much as I should. I- um, that's not that's really all, that's right. that's right. <laughs> I do go back. That's the part that interests me. Yeah, and so, yeah, I go back. And it seems like, well, for instance, um, I was trying to write a blog today talking about getting desensitized to certain things. This is about humans um, in the culture. And I ended up completely immersed in the difference between habituation and desensitization and I haven't come out the other end yet and I may not even ever yeah. write that blog you know I may not make it <laughs> that's brilliant that's brilliant that's brilliant yeah like I said I was in the same thing about errorless I still am you know I was, I was going back and forth with Claire Russell and, and Eric and they were kind of prodding me about errorless learning and trying to bring out <laughs> trying to make me come to my own kind of conclusion but um I think you're right. I think I need to go back to the stuff with Skinner yeah, if, if Skinner's wrote about it. Um, yeah, I'm, that blew my mind <laughs> for a few months. I'm still kind of, I'm still figuring that one out. But um, yeah, I, I, when you get into it and you really get into the theory and stuff, you do find that, don't you? Where you come across something, um, and it just really. Yeah, yeah, it's very easy, <laughs> and I have to remind myself all the time. You know, I 
this is learning theory is a subject that people get PhDs in. You know, it's like those of us in the blog world are, are dipping our toes in the water and it's so easy to, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, to learn a little bit and think you've got it. And I learn every day that I don't have it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I've probably been more too preoccupied with the practical skills recently. Well, I, I, that's uh, that's something you need to do as well, of course. But um, you know, you, you definitely need to look back at the science and yeah, and and really look at it. But um, do you find the science quite accessible? Yes, I do, and I'll tell you why. Um, I have a degree in engineering. And I suffered <laughs> through that degree <laughs> mightily uh, because my uh, my bachelor's degree was in music, and I have a master's degree in music. And I finagled my way into a master's program in engineering by taking all the general science courses that an undergraduate in science would take. But it meant that I never had the a focus on one field. You know, I didn't have an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering or physics or math or anything. I just had all the general stuff. So when I tried to take this master's program, I was in over my head all the time. And I made it, and I did pretty well. But reading those journal articles was just the most painful thing because I only understood about a quarter of what I read you know, because of all the math stuff you had to figure out to even understand what they were talking about. So to me, reading psychology articles, as, as difficult as it may be sometimes, is just, it's a lot easier than what I used to try to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's in sure English it is, for starters, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. So what is, I mean, how do you normally access the papers? Yes, through, um, like, Google I... Books and I am so lucky. Um, here in Little Rock, Arkansas, our library system, our public library system is fantastic. I thought when I left the university that I was going to lose a lot of access. But basically, I start off in Google Scholar and Google Books, but I can get basically any any journal journal article electronically within about a day uh, through my interlibrary loan and I can have up to five requests oh, wow. in at any time so I'm just one of the luckiest people ever yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds like yeah. something that we should all probably look into because <laughs> I'm sure a few of us have probably have that uh, yeah. capability but you, you can kind of start but, um, to tell the people who don't have the access and, and are trying to write things from the abstracts you know because abstracts don't have the whole story and I try really 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 hard never to write an article unless I actually have the whole thing in front of me and I've, I've done it a couple times just as an inclusion in a in a you know a reference list but basically if I write about something I'm I'm looking at the whole article and I'm very lucky to be able to do that uh-huh yeah I think I mean when I was doing my degree I I found um I think that it's if you're not used to reading scientific papers, though, yeah. it is quite daunting. I mean, you sound you've come from a background, obviously, where you you yeah. to, um, <laughs> put up with much worse. <laughs> um, it's still for, for it's still quite um, difficult. How how do you go about learning how to kind of pick apart the articles? Is it just kind of you know reading yeah, as many as you can? Yeah, following the and trail it, first of the references and I, I learned that by doing my own literature search um, in graduate school but you know you can find these fantastic articles from the 1950s and you know they have 240 or 690 citations and everybody talked about them and you think great you know these are wonderful and I can talk about this mm -hmm. and it but if you don't follow the reference trail up to the present day you might miss the fact that it was completely disproven in 1974 and so it's it always takes longer than you think it's going to to do this and I certainly don't do a perfect job I don't think anybody can but I certainly cannot but I just as much time as I have I read it but I especially follow you know the articles that come after because those are the ones that really tell us whether that that research stood or not mm -hmm. do you do that with every article that you write or are you always looking for the um, the scientific journals and the papers on it or have you got to a point now where you can kind of write and there there's certain topics that I to am pretty confident about that and of course not all, not all of my blogs are that scientific 
you know, I do just write personal experience ones that I don't really have to cite a lot of things. But, yeah, there's a few topics where I feel, you know, I pretty much can pull up the references at hand and, and go for it. Mm-hmm. That's all right. Yeah, I mean, I'm jumping backwards a little bit now, but I, I, I remember. Um, I was going to bring that one up too. I'm glad you mentioned that. Your reflex. Yeah, because I thought that was a really interesting sure. one because that's something sure. I'd always just assumed, you know, um, was a given. But it's interesting, like you said. Yeah, I mean, it seems quite relevant that actually when you look into right, it right it's not a monolith not as, and that was one I was going to mention when you were asking you know do you go back and change things that's one where I did write an addendum and largely because of the comments section and some people had brought up things that I already knew about and didn't mention but it turns out that I better mention them because everybody was <laughs> everybody else was going to you know the fact that Stephen Lindsay talks about it um, uh-huh. in the, in his books and, the, and that word that I can't remember right now but um Everybody was going to bring that up, and I had considered that and had discarded the idea, so I needed to cover that. But also, in, that was a great experience because in the course of the comments, everybody learned something, and I did too. And people gave me some really good leads about you know how we can explain all this. And I I think my thesis statement stands that you know there is not one monolithic opposition re- reflex, but there are you know dozens of small balance reflexes that happen and they don't always have to go in opposition but our body does things to keep us in in human you know humans of course keep us standing up (laughs) and with animals keep them from tipping over but yeah i learned Mm -hmm. a lot in the comments in that in that blog yeah i um i'd always see because i'd always used opposition reflex um to justify some things that i some of my thoughts on um Obviously, there's a bit of a debate. I don't know if the uh, well, there's right. a bit of a debate between whether you should use collars or harnesses, and do harnesses make dogs pull? And I'd always thought that harnesses mm-hmm. um, allowed sure. more. Point. This Go is for it. just me theorising. <laughs> I I'd always thought that harnesses had more points of contact, and thus you would get more op- opposition reflex. But I still sided with harnesses because I thought that they were more com- comfortable for the dog, and as long right. as you've taught um, loose lead walking, then it doesn't really make much difference. But now I wonder, after your article, whether there is actually a difference... Um, that, that's that a good one, and I, between a harness I don't and have an answer for it. I think it would depend on in some ways whether it was a front attach or a back attach harness because you're just talking about different points of contact on the dog are going to get different um, responses but you know I do know what people are talking about when they when they talk about opposition reflex I mean it happens all the time you pull and the dog pulls back (laughs) there is a thing there it's just not exactly what the way we've thought about it yeah and, and I guess it depends on the type of harness as well I mean there's so many different types of harness Right. And, and the way that they kind of wrap themselves around the dog's body. I mean, um, some of the harnesses obviously go straight across the shoulders, and that's probably going to make more uh, a, a more of a difference. Right. Than yeah, the ones, ones that, across the shoulders uh, like are going to inhibit certain kinds of movement. I do like your point about just the, all the different yeah, points of really contact. You know, for instance, I'd, if I do have my dog on a collar, I I don't like those tiny thin little collars because I mean that's more like having a wire around your neck if 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 the dog does pull that is going to be more painful than if you have if the dog's big enough they have a two inch wide collar and you spread the pressure around a little bit and so that does extend to harnesses I think if a dog is pulling you know of course the pressure is not on the whole harness it's going to be wherever the points of contact are (laughs) you know that are that are being um, touched that's a that's a really interesting um, point because I, I've heard the opposite where people say they don't want the big collar because they feel like it's a big thing on the dog, you know, a big chunky thing that the dog's got to have around its neck. Whereas I, I have always, the same as you, yeah. I've always favoured the um, bigger, yeah. more padded. Well, just around the house, you know, um, I, I wouldn't leave the two-inch collar on my sports. dog. But if I were going to walk her without a harness, I would definitely use use the wide one, just because I know there's moments she's going to pull, and I don't want her to hurt herself. Has, 
I mean, in your kind of writing, have there, when you've looked into things, have there been things that have really surprised you? Is, is there I'm kind of thinking that about that. Well, the out? airless learning thing was one of those. Um, that that definitely was a whole new world for me. Um, recently, I had written a little bit about social learning, and, and that's something where, you know, I stuck my toe in the water and probably didn't learn as much as I thought I had. <laughs> and that's another blog I, I really need to kind of write an update about. But uh-huh. uh, nothing dramatic is coming to mind, but it just seems like, Whenever I write about something, you know, it's it's the tip of the iceberg and there's a whole bunch of other good stuff in there. And like you were saying, you know, you want to make it coherent to people, but not make compromises about the material. You know, certainly not use incorrect terminology, but also you, you just can't cover everything you need to cover in a 1,500-word blog. <laughs> and uh, it, it's really hard to break up the material for me yeah. that way and I do allow myself <laughs> Eric has gotten on to me a couple times about that but I you know there's times when I'll certainly go for a 2,000 or 2,500 or even a 3,000 word blog if that's what I think it needs to take and if only three people write it read it you know so be it <laughs> is that an issue that really bugs you um, with people maybe oversimplifying things I'm really thinking about books that are maybe written for dog owners particularly or content that's written for it's dog owners. It's a really hard line to follow and yeah I do think that that much. happens it's it's just very hard you know because if you're writing to pet owners they don't really want to learn that and I'm speaking from experience I'm not throwing rocks at anybody I didn't want to I wanted to fix the dog's problem you know I, and I wanted it fast and so there's always some kind of compromise if you're writing to people on how to train their dogs you know, for me, I mentioned it was it took a whole epiphany, epiphany for me to get around to really getting my head around positive reinforcement training. So there's a question of, you know, how mechanistic to make it, you know, how many little euphemisms to make, you know, how many little protocols to write. That's all hard. And I think that's probably why I will never write a <laughs> how to train your dog book. It's too hard. <laughs> Oh, well, wow, thank you. wow. Well, you probably should because I I'll think put you're it on the, the list. To do it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but you obviously you've written um, your book on dementia in dogs. Um, what was it? That's I mean, right. forgive my ignorance because I, I obviously I haven't I haven't read it unfortunately. But um, I had um, a rat uh, terrier who was going book? on kind of who was about fifteen years topic? old who started acting funny. And in my own process of getting her diagnosed, I had never heard of it. I didn't know that dogs could get a disease that was similar to Alzheimer's. I think most people don't know that. Um, And it happens very often that dogs, you know, it's not normal aging. You know, people think, well, the dog's just getting old. And certainly there's a little memory loss that goes with aging and some other oddities but canine cognitive dysfunction is a disease and when I learned that she had you know an actual condition I wanted to learn everything I could about it and I also wanted to help other people who had dogs who had that or who had dogs you know in that age group that were at risk because really most of the interventions about canine cognitive dysfunction the earlier you do it the better (laughs) Yes, um, the main drug used in the United States is selegiline, uh, which goes under the brand name of Anapril for dogs. And it's actually a a drug that's used in Parkinson's disease, uh, not Alzheimer's in humans. Um, But it is, you know, some of the vet behaviorists I talked to, you know, put dogs on it preventively starting about seven or eight years old, you know. Yeah, before there's any symptoms at all, and before most people would consider the dog geriatric. Wow. But almost all the interventions, be they the drugs or the supplements or the diets, you know, there are some diets mm-hmm. that have shown to help. The earlier you start it, the better. And and the drugs is a preventative um, The one drug, Anapril, is, is as, pretty as a, a safe. Factor involved um, it has that. gastrointestinal side effects for some dogs, but they're, and I think... 
I think maybe for some, you know, for some dogs, it's it just uh, helps with anxiety. And I guess for some, there can be a paradoxical effect of, you know, more anxiety. But for a mind drug, it's it's pretty benign. It's one of the easier ones to, to give to a dog and, and not worry too much. So um, how do you decide which dogs to use that with and which dogs not to if you're using it as a preventative? Is it something... That's that's a vet behavior question. I really don't. I I really don't know. Um, I'm lucky to talk to some of those people. Does not happen. Is that it's not breed specific. You know, you you tend to see it a lot with smaller dogs because they have longer lifespans. But actually, um, if you adjust for lifespan, it's there has there's been no showing of any particular breed association. So it happens with all sizes of dogs. I don't think there's a breed that has it more often, not that I've read. So I don't know that there's risk factors that you can look for. So for most people, you know, you're going to wait until you see a symptom and think, oops, (laughs) better do something about it. That's That's human nature. That seems uh, that's quite unusual that, it, that there's no kind of. I don't know either. There, there's not a lot written about that. that it's not but it, it maybe, correlates very know. well with human Alzheimer's. Um, you know the um, beta amyloid plaques that occur that grow in the brain and you know prevent the neurons from getting where they need to go. That happens in dogs and people just about the same way and. Fortunately or unfortunately for dogs, you can decide, you know, dogs are a very good laboratory animal for experiments for human Alzheimer's. Um, the the one good thing that comes about out of that, I guess, well, I, I mean, yes, humans too, but the research does benefit the dogs as well. But they think that canine cognitive dysfunction maps very well to early Alzheimer's in people the other one of the other symptoms uh, not symptoms brain uh, changes in humans is the neurofibrillary tangles and those don't happen with dogs as much and they think it's just that dogs don't have as long a lifespan as we do and they don't live as long with the disease i don't remember how i got started on this but they're they're very similar they're very similar diseases you've got different drug options in terms of treatment is, yeah. I'm guessing there's some kind yeah. of management um, And that's what well the bulk from, of my you know, book is about, kind of um, how to make the environment safe disease. for your dog. There are a lot of behaviors that these dogs do that are distressing to us, but in my observation, you know, in my small sample, but I've talked to some vets as well, the dog is not necessarily miserable. You know, when you see a dog standing in the corner zoning out, you know, anybody's reaction is oh that poor thing you know you see a dog turning circles it's pathetic it breaks my heart usually those behaviors Mm -hmm. you know it does not appear that the dog itself is suffering so if you can create an environment you know I my house layout was such that I have this big long hall and that's where my dog wandered when I was away from home I paved it all with uh, bath mats and things that I could wash so she would also have some traction because um, it's also very common that they can't get on their feet very well. But I made her a little pacing area, and that's what she did when I was not home. I had webcams to watch her, and so I had made this safe place for her to walk up and down, and I had put um, exercise pens unfolded, you know, basically a wire fence wired off part of my living room because there was furniture there where she could get tangled in the legs. It's another thing that they tend to do. They end up in tor- in corners and under things, and it, if there's something they can caught, get caught in, they will. So that was some of the management I did. You know, close off the door to the bathroom because she could get stuck behind the toilet and mm-hmm. um, make sure there wasn't anything she could get under or around or tangled in and uh, give her a place to space to pace and that's what my dog did is she did a lot of walking around but the bright side of that is that it kept her a little bit exercised (laughs) yeah well so i mean when we hear about pacing when you're not there that obviously that makes us think about anxiety so is but then you 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 said that right um it's 
It's not always there can be. That is one of the official symptoms, um, and it's actually so the first symptom that my little dog exhibited, it, it just, and she had it for a year be- before we correctly diagnosed it as being part of canine cognitive dysfunction. Uh, we tried putting her on Prozac first, and that she had a paradoxical reaction to that, and it was not good. But, um, yes, anxiety can be part of it. With my little dog, she had that mostly in the beginning six months or so. And uh, I shouldn't generalize too much. My mother had Alzheimer's as well, and it was very similar for her. She went for a, through a period of adjustment where it was very, very, very hard on her. But as, you know, speaking very frankly, as the brain deteriorates more, I think it hits some people and some dogs in different ways. But for both my dog, Cricket, and my mother, they got calmer as the disease progressed. And that's not true for any everybody by any means, but that was, I think, very lucky for us. But Cricket was not nervous um, as she went more into the disease. She was more calm. Is this a disease that is ever kind of grounds for euthanasia? Yes, the, um, I believe it does, and it's terribly it's hard on people the because their quality of life does suffer. in the U.S. anyway, you know, people usually keep their dogs alive until they stop eating. <laughs> you know, we want to keep them with us. We try to keep them pain-free, but one of the big things is, you know, can they eat or not, and, and you'll see a dog losing a whole lot of weight, and that's kind of, one of the things, I'm not trying to be unkind here, but one of the things that we measure, you know, are they able to eat, you know, and are they getting around okay? And some dogs with dementia are otherwise very healthy, and my little cricket was that way. And I did euthanize her uh, before she was at death's door long before that um the turning point for us was for about the last six weeks of her life she'd forgotten how to drink water Mm -hmm. and so i had to make all of her food she could still eat and she could eat out of a bowl but i had to make all of her food into kind of a soup so that was kind of the handwriting on the wall that the disease was getting to some very basic brain functions and um she could still walk she could still growl at the vet which she did you know she could still wander around she could still sit happily in my lap but she had a seizure one morning and as it happened yeah. I was with her and that was the day I thought I'm not going to let it go any further you know it's that could have happened when I wasn't there if she's had one she's going to have some more you know this is the big downturn in the disease and so she was a physically healthy dog except for her brain and I did euthanize her at that day, that very day. And I write about that in my book, and it's one of the things that people mm-hmm. just need to hear because everybody needs permission. Um, nobody can do that very comfortably, you know, when their dog is still up and around and at a good weight and can move and is not blind or deaf and, you know, very healthy. It's It's very, very hard on people. You can't really judge, but I know talking to some people – they have let their dog go longer than I would have. Um, but other times in my life, I'm sure it would be the other way around with other animals that I've had to make that decision for. Yes. I remember as well reading um, on your She's blog. She's American, about, so that's probably um, right. <laughs> you um, is it the Villa Lobos? Yes. I'm probably yes, saying that the wrong. quality um, of life scale. And it's very good. I recommend it to everybody. They have um, like a criteria. You know, it's a numerical um, scale, and it has about... 12 or 20 questions on it that you give a rating for and I think for a lot of people that's off-putting you know they don't like the idea of assigning a number to something but even if they don't like the number part of it and don't want to add it all up just looking at the criteria that she mentions um, is very good like you know can the dog breathe okay you know can the dog lie down and relax you know does how much help does a dog need to eat or drink you know that kind of thing it's just as a a list of considerations i think it's excellent yeah there's a book called facing farewell mm-hmm. um it's by an american like vet i think well, she's american um, named uh, julie reck r e c k and it's that it's not about dementia but it's about assessing quality of life and it goes very deeply into how euthanasia works you know for those of us who have not had to go through that experience you know how to talk to your doctor about it and uh, 
it's a very you know it's not a fun book to read but in some ways neither is mine <laughs> but i think it's a very necessary book and a very helpful one yeah that sounds really important i mean i it's not it's not something i've really had to deal with yet fortunately but i know people i mean i used to work with a home border and i know there'd been times before where um she'd looked after dogs which were probably being kept on just too long and uh, and she's yeah actually she'd actually said something to the owners and actually uh, um their reaction wasn't yeah. anger it was actually yeah. relief that you know that they you know wasn't like you said about getting permission that kind of thing um, which was quite it, it surprising. It depends on how you I say it, too. I, I hear I, I you about that. I don't know if I'd be brave enough my to My website that I, I put up the website but, um, before I ever finished the book. And, yeah. you know, my website is full of people whose dogs are in the end stages. You know, it's like they've only now figured out that it's not just old age, that there's really something wrong with the dog. And it's so sad. You know, it's where the dog is really beyond any kind of medical intervention. But... You can't just say it's okay um, because you don't know their situation. But you can talk about your own journey um, and some general principles of ethics and give permission without giving permission, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, you're not saying specifically it's okay in your position with your particular dog. Go ahead. You know, we can't. We can't do that over the Internet or even probably in person. But we can lay the foundation for ways for them to think about it you know that I sure. think are helpful canine cognitive dysfunction I'm also wondering as, as we talk about yeah, this CCD. Um, what differentiates is it canine cognitive disease is that the actual what differentiates that from other behaviours because um, I mean I'm thinking of a lot of old dogs display yeah, behaviours that you. Um, maybe they didn't as they were young when they were young the diagnosis of exclusion I, I, um, I wonder how you differentiate a lot of the two. things that older dogs do or you know that a dog with canine cognitive dysfunction might do could also be a symptom of just plain old age or of another uh, disease or condition but it's a constellation of things that all come together and there's an acronym that people used to use that's called DISHA and it's D-I-S-H-A and um, disorientation is one of them um, the I is interactions, changes in social interactions. That was the first thing that happened with my little dog. I said she got nervous. She got nervous about a specific person that she used to be friends with. Um, the other things are the S is for sleep and wake alterations. The H is for house soiling. And, of course, how many old dogs have problems with that? You know, probably 80% of them. And the A is for activity level alterations. And so that definition is is kind of helpful and kind of not but there are kind of some signature behaviors that dogs with dementia tend to do and it's the whole standing into corners standing in corners thing i have pictures on my blog and in my book about it um circling and they stop understanding how doors work it's it's the oddest thing they'll stand at the hinge side of the door you know a, a dog a door they've been going out for 12 years <laughs> They'll get mixed up and they'll stand at the wrong side. And then when you open the door, they can't problem solve. You know, they can't figure out how to get out of the way. But the thing that I noticed most with Cricket is that she didn't move with intention. You know, she kind of drifted along. Mm. And, you know, my friend has a, a rat terrier who's 16 years old now, and she is blind and deaf. But if she gets stuck behind something, she gets out. You know, she has the problem solving ability to figure out what to do but when cricket got stuck behind something she just stayed there and it's lack of intent another example of that is that my backyard is on a slope and when i would carry her out you know several times a day to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. i would put her on the upside of the slope because what she was going to do is just walk down the hill <laughs> you know gravity is what governed the direction she went but that's the biggest difference that I see is you see this gradual mm-hmm. losing of, you know, intentional movement and intentional behavior. Do you think it's underdiagnosed? I mean, I, all of a lot of these behaviors and the things you're talking about sound like things that I've yeah, seen it's terribly before, underdiagnosed. Um, there's before. a couple studies I mean, outside of have my notes here. I've never heard that. Um, there was a study um, of a thousand dogs that were aged eight 
and older, and 14% of them had signs of it. And that's just eight and, eight and older. That's not very old. Um, another study showed 60% of dogs that were, I think, 12 and older. But, yeah, it's, it's quite common, more common mm-hmm. than we think. It, you have to get it diagnosed with a vet. Um, the, it's, I'm so lucky. I, I have dogdementia.com. Uh, what did you say your website was for the, um, well, for both, yeah. actually? But also, I, I own caninecognitivedysfunction.com, but it redirects to Dog Dementia. So either one of those will get you Brilliant. there. Um, well, yeah, I was brilliant. so lucky. I couldn't believe it. But that's that's how unknown the disease is. You know, I, I bought those. Uh-huh. I bought those at you know a cut oh, rate price Straight in 2012, I think. You know, <laughs> nobody knew. Nobody knew then. Yeah, that goes to show. And my my main my behavior website is EileenAndDogs.com. dot com. Uh-huh. Pretty much find me any anywhere on any social media with Eileen and, and then dogs. you also have YouTube. Yeah, Facebook, yeah. Twitter. Pinterest, Instagram. All right, brilliant. Well, it's been really good talking to you, and I, the the um, canine okay. cognitive dysfunction. But uh, on Amazon, you can get the print or the or the ebook. There, Thank I you guess. so much for having me. This was a blast talking to you. <laughs>